Good morning, Grace Community Church. Great to be here today. My name, as they said, is Eric, and I'm your missionary in Dubai. If you were here during the first hour, you kind of got the full update on what is going on over there. But for those of you who were not here, I want you to know that our gospel partnership is bearing fruit at the ends of the earth. We live in the United Arab Emirates, where I pastor at Redeemer Church of Dubai and teach at the Gulf Theological Seminary. And uh, the church is growing. The seminary is growing. At the seminary, we have more students this year than ever before. We have added a second campus and a growing number of faculty to come and support the work. And we are able to keep sending more and more graduates to go out and to serve in churches and to plant new churches. And so uh, the, the, the word of the Lord is going forth and multiplying. And so pray that you're encouraged by that this morning. The opportunity is strategic and the need is great. We need the Lord's help in all of that. So we would ask you to continue laboring in prayer for us as you remember the work over there. But uh, we're thankful for you. We're thankful to be partners in the gospel with you. Uh, well, let me open our time in prayer as we go to the word this morning. Father God, thank you for this church. Thank you that we can be partners in the gospel, that as we serve uh, all the way on the other side of the world, that you are using this church uh, to make Christ known over on that side. And Father, pray that uh, for much more fruit uh, to come from this partnership over many more years. And now, Father, as we go to your word, may we see Christ. Uh, may we know Christ better. May we behold him in his glory. And may we be transformed by what we see there. So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and give us hearts that are ready to receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, as I said, I do live on the other side of the world, and it's a long flight to get from there over to here. And so we, you know, you get on that 16-hour plane ride, and you uh, have aspirations of being very productive, and so you start typing away on your next lecture or whatever it is you're doing. But, you know, like 8, 10 hours in, it kind of, you know, the, you're a little tired and confused, and you just turn on one of the in-flight movies. And that happened to me the other day. And uh, so the movie that I came to was this movie, Creed 2, which is, you know, the boxing movie. It's, you know, not Creed 3, which is the new one, but Creed 2, which is the few years ago kind of one. And this is your typical sports movie. So if you haven't seen it, you know, you kind of seen one, you've seen them all. There's the guy, Creed, the boxer. He's trying to find his way in boxing. And you have the wise old mentor, who in this case is Rocky. And the, the key question the mentor asks the young guy is he asks him, what are you fighting for? What are you fighting for? Why are you doing this? What makes it worth working out so hard and training and preparing and suffering so much to compete on this world championship level? What are you fighting for? Well, it turns out that Creed doesn't know what he's fighting for, and he struggles with the answer to that question. And so he loses this big fight, and he loses bad, and he gets hurt. And for a long time, he's sort of adrift and not knowing where to go in life until eventually, you know, he kind of has this moment of clarity and gets it all figured out and here's his baby daughter and he realizes that his you know it's all about her and fighting for her and then he's got the focus he needs to really work hard and prepare and he comes back with a vengeance and wins the big fight and you know the, the whole thing ends and they live happily ever after I guess I haven't seen the, the next one but, uh, but but the question I think is a good one and the question is what are you fighting for 
We should ask that question. We need to ask that in missions as we go over to the other side of the world. Well, you know, why do that? Why move over there? Why, uh, why undergo all that, that is involved in being in a, in a hard place? Why do that? And you need to ask that too, living here in North Texas. What are, what are you fighting for? What, it, what makes it worth it to, to get up in the morning and to go to work next week or put in the time or study for that exam or serve in that ministry or invest in that relationship? What's the point of all of it? Why, why do we do that? So to answer that question, we want to look today at the book of Revelation we think about the last book of the Bible, maybe we think about future events and tribulations and Antichrist and getting left behind. But remember, this book of Revelation was written by a real apostle to real people, to real Christians and real churches in the first century. And these Christians, if you were a Christian around the year 100 A.D., You were a minority in a culture that was hostile to Christianity. And these early Christians, they were against the grain. And they they didn't do what other people did. And there was all this pressure to worship the emperor and to go along with the way other people live. Just live like everybody else. Why do you you keep being different? Why do you keep worshiping Jesus? What, What are you fighting for, Christian? That's the kind of question that was behind the book of Revelation. And so God gave us this last book of the Bible, not just to predict the future, but also to shape our present priorities. And so in Revelation 5 this morning, it's going to do that. It's going to shape us by giving us three different glimpses of Jesus. We want to see three glimpses of Jesus this morning. But before we get there, before we get there, I want us to see some of the context. So we're, we're trying to get to Revelation 5, but we got to get there by way of Revelation 4. So for, before even Revelation 4, Revelation 1 is kind of the beginning of the book. This is like the prologue in Revelation 1. And so if you go to Revelation 1, God says, I have something I want to say to these seven churches. So I'm going to reveal visions to the apostle John. And so then we have John, the apostle. He's exiled to the island of Patmos. And, and he's there on Patmos off the coast of Turkey. And he sees Jesus. And he hears Jesus speak. And he's told to write down what Jesus says. And so Jesus gives him these messages to seven different churches, and that's Revelation 2 and 3 is these messages or letters to each of these seven different local churches of Asia. And so that's sort of this first vision that's given to John. And then we get to chapter 4. And so look at Revelation 4. It begins like this. After this, so after that first vision with the messages to the churches, now we're into the second vision. So after this I looked, and behold... A door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And so here's the start of a new vision. And in this vision, this same vision actually continues all the way through Revelation 18. So all the future stuff, the judgments, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, that's all going to be included in the vision that begins right here. But before we get to all of those things, all of those future things, all those apocalyptic kinds of things, John is given the opportunity to see where does this future apocalyptic vision come from? So in Revelation 4 and 5, which is where we are right now, John is given a tour of heaven. 
He's introduced into the very presence of God. He gets to see the very throne room of God. And so verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, it says, "At, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So John is in heaven. John sees the one on the throne. This is the Almighty God. This is the Father himself on his throne. And then verse 3 says, He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. It's, it's, it's just this incredible scene that the splendor and the majesty and the magnificence of what he's beholding in heaven it can't even be described. He, has no, he doesn't have the words to, to capture what's in front of him, except all he can do is to kind of compare it in some way to the most colorful and valuable things that he's ever seen. And he's saying it was kind of like that. But then verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And so we see these elders showing up throughout Revelation. They're kind of, a, kind of worship leaders up in heaven. It's like some kind of heavenly council, some, some, uh, some kind of leaders of angels. The chiefs of God's heavenly servants seems to be who this is. Then verse 5, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And we see this description, as good Bible readers, we immediately think of other places in the Bible where God showed up and God manifested his glory in a physical place. And we think of Moses receiving the law on Sinai or the Spirit of God coming at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We have these sights and these sounds that can only be compared to the incredible displays of God's glory in creation of lightning and thunder and fire and smoke and water. And so uh, this is what it is like to be in the presence of God. And, And John is doing his best, but he's really trying to describe for us what is ultimately indescribable. But then verse 5, it says, Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Verse 7, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And so stay with me now. You've got the throne. You've got the glory of God shining forth from the throne. And then around the throne, there's these incredible creatures. And in the Bible, these remind us of the cherubim and the seraphim that we saw in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. And this this is hard to picture now. It's not... This is not security camera footage, like here is this camera in heaven, and here's exactly what it looked like. When we have visions in the Bible, there's these symbolic descriptions that that portray the characteristics of these beings, and John is trying to put that into words, but these heavenly realities are so unlike what we're used to that it ultimately defies description. But the point here is that we have creatures, And these creatures exist in the presence of God. And being so close to God, they project the character of God. And the attributes of God, they are close to God, so they are like God. They are covered with eyes because the God that they serve is all-seeing and all-knowing. They have attributes of strength and of wisdom and mobility, all indicating the power of the God in whose presence they exist. And then the verse goes on, verse 8, it says, Day and night, 
they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so in the throne room of heaven, the presence of God is accompanied by the worship of God. Only one God exists. Only one God was and is and is to come. He is the creator. He is the almighty. No one is like him. No one can compare with his power and his glory. And so three times they repeat, holy, 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 because the quintessential attribute of God is his holiness, his otherness, his distinctiveness, his set-apartness. So then verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So it's not just the living creatures. It's the elders who rule with God over all of creation. They're also devoted to the worship of God. So then uh, verse 10, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And so if you're tracking with us, this is all setting the scene. If you're John and if you're having this vision of heaven, it's it, it, here we're kind of with, we're here with John. It's like we're we're looking through a window and we're sort of beholding through this window what the heavenly throne room is like and what's going on in this heavenly throne room. This is this is all setting the scene. But then if we skip over a few verses, uh, as if kind of from off stage, one more character appears. That's in chapter 5, verse 6. It says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And one thing we should notice in this verse, you know, in some of these little words that we skip over sometimes, uh, John is really emphasizing for us the, the layout, the, the spatial relationship of this scene, if you will, that there's the throne of the Almighty God, and then there's an outer circle surrounding that throne. We have these 24 other thrones in a circle around God's throne with the elders on them. And then between the elders and the throne, as he's laid it out, we have the four living creatures that are inside the thrones of the elders, around the thrones of God. But then here in 5-6, when it says the words between and among, in the midst of, is literally the word that's repeated twice there. What he's showing us, what he's emphasizing, is that in heaven, in the, in the inner part of the inner circle, in the very center of the whole thing, Here's the lamb. Here's Jesus. And I talked about three glimpses of Jesus, and finally, here we are at the first one. The first one is that Jesus is the center of everything. He's the center of everything. Jesus is being shown to us as the very center of heaven, as the focal point of all of creation. As we read Revelation, he's already been described in chapter 1. John says in 1.12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. It says in 120 that the lampstands symbolize the seven churches. And so again, these churches need to know Jesus is at the center. He's in the midst of them. He's in the middle of them. He's at the center of heaven, and he's in the center of these local churches. 
And then chapter 1 goes on to describe Jesus in this way that highlights his royal power and his wisdom and his authority to rule and to judge. And here's these believers in these seven churches and they're being persecuted and they're suffering and they're being called upon to overcome. And what God is giving them as a motivation to persevere and to overcome is this vision, this fuel for this fight that they can look up into heaven and to to know and to remember that in heaven, Jesus is at the center of everything. He's in the middle of it all. And though you live for Christ now and you don't see him now, as you faithfully serve him and as you pursue him and you suffer for him, he is in your midst, it's saying, that he is there, he's in the center. Back in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is being described in this way that emphasizes his centrality, that he's in the middle of everything. He cares about everything. He's able to do anything. In 5.6, you can't miss this number 7. The number 7 is often used in Scripture as a number of completeness. And so there's, uh, there's seven you know, there's seven horns and seven eyes and seven spirits. And this, this imagery kind of goes back to Zechariah. And in Zechariah 3 and 4, there's this idea that God has eyes all throughout the earth, meaning that he sees and he acts everywhere, that, that he's aware of everything. He knows what's going on everywhere, that he keeps tabs on the whole earth because the whole earth belongs to him. He, he sees you. He knows you. He's bringing about God's plan in the universe and in your life. And see, as we as readers of Revelation are looking up at the glory of heaven, we're then also meant to look back down at our own lives by way of comparison. And what we have to realize when we see the glimpse of heaven and see Jesus at the center, what we we naturally realize is that we're missing something. We're missing something. It's kind of like, Sometimes my family plays board games. I don't know if we have any board game fans here in the room. But, but my kids like to play like the really complicated kind of board games. And uh, so, you know, maybe they learned a game from a friend or from the youth group. And so they'll say, okay, we're going we're to learn this new game. And it begins with this really long explanation. And here's all the rules and how we're going to get the energy chips. And we're going to convert them into gold doubloons. And we got to convert those into victory points. And then, you know, we'll kind of get like two hours into the game. And I'll be feeling pretty good about my chances. And I'll, you know, and, and, but then like some new detail always kind of comes out. And, I'll, and they'll say, oh, yeah, like the, the blue cards are actually worth twice as much as the red cards. And, and I'll be like, what? But I, ha- I have all the red cards. You're saying they're only worth half as much? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you, sh- you should have got the blue ones. And so it's like if I had known that, if I had been aware of that rule at the beginning of the game, I would have played the whole game up to this point differently. And they would say, oh, yeah, yeah, like we told you at the beginning, but you, were, you weren't listening. You were probably looking at your phone. You weren't paying attention. And, 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 and it's like, you know, some of us are like that in that we've been told things, but we haven't heard. We've been shown things, but we haven't seen. But if we were to hear this text today, see, everything would be different. We would play the game differently, so to speak. And, and just even thinking so simply, I say, okay, what if, why is it, as, as we're going about life, why is it so easy for me to sit there in my lazy boy and spend, you know, half an hour like on my phone scrolling through the Facebook updates, and, you know, but it's so hard to spend five minutes reading scripture and digging into the word of God. Why, you know, for some of us young people, is it so, you know, why is it so 
easy to talk one way around my friends and, my, and my, the people I hang out with in a different way around my parents and the people from church. You know, why is it so difficult to make a plan for where I'm trying to be in five years and take purposeful steps to get there? Why is so much of my thought process about how to uh, achieve what I want and how to get things for myself? You know, how can I avoid being stressed and burdened and how can I find the fun I want? And, and so it's like we have all these thoughts, we have all these behaviors. And the question this text wants us to ask is to say, where is Jesus in your answer to those questions? Is he at the center or is he somewhere else? Is he at the periphery? Is he somewhat left out? Are you planning your day and living your life without an intentional focus on what is true in heaven right now? Because once we really see in Scripture that Jesus is the center of everything, this has to change everything about how you live today and tomorrow and next week and next year. Because, see, when you, when you see this vision of heaven... So much of what animates us day by day, what the politicians are doing or what the celebrities are doing or what the athletes are doing or what the kids in the next room are doing, so much of that just doesn't matter in this throne room. What does matter is Jesus. And see, this text doesn't only challenge, you know, the bad people, the hypocrites, the fakes, even, you know, all of us. All of us, even those with great intentions of following Jesus, we look at ourselves in the mirror of this passage and we fall short. Think about John. If there's anyone who's like a model follower of Jesus, it would be the Apostle John, the disciple who Jesus loved. At this point, he's an old man. He's had a faithful life, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, a pillar of the early church, a leader and shepherd over the many churches in Asia for decades after the time of most of the New Testament. But when this godly man beholds this vision of heavenly glory, look what happens. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And so we've just been seeing the amazing glories and beauties of heaven. And all this idyllic beauty is shattered by the reality that for a human to see God in his glory is simultaneously to perceive your own unworthiness and the unworthiness of all of creation. There's something wrong with us. And what's wrong with us is sin. We have rebelled against God. We've lived for ourselves. We are not worthy to be in God's presence, much less to open his seals, to see his plan for the future of the world. And, 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 and here in this scene, it's, it's like the idea that they've searched everywhere. They've searched all of heaven. They searched all the earth. They, they went to all of the, the great gurus and the celebrity pastors and the leaders of the world, and no one was worthy. Nobody was able to open this scroll. And for John... That's devastating. Do you see that? And so here is the only place in the Bible where there's tears in heaven. 
And see, if you and I could see what John sees here, if we were able to sort of remove the dark-tinted goggles of American culture and see clearly the glories of God on the throne of heaven, we too would be devastated. He says, I began to weep loudly. The, the language is saying that this, this is an intense kind of weeping. It's not just like one tear in the corner of the eye, but it's like just the full-on ugly cry is what's going on here. Just like in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah the prophet sees Jesus on his throne, he sees cherubim declaring, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah's response is not delight, but it's devastation. Isaiah sees Christ on his throne. He falls on his face and says, woe is me. Woe is me. Even this servant of God thinks, I, I've wasted everything. I haven't lived for what matters. So much of what I say and what I do is so trivial and, and everyone else around me is even worse. And, and what's wrong with us? There's something wrong with us. And see, that's where we so desperately need our second glimpse of Jesus. We saw the first one, that he's the center of everything, but he's not only the center of everything. We secondly see here that Jesus is the Savior for everyone. He's the Savior for everyone. Verse 5 Weep no more, the elder says. That's the only command in the passage. To really perceive our own unworthiness is devastating, but God has a solution for unworthiness, and it's Jesus. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Remember who Jesus is. This heavenly elder is saying, he's the lion, he's the king of Israel, and so he is worthy. He's worthy. The idea is that Jesus has been tested, he's been weighed in the balance, he's been examined as to his perfection, his worth, his power, and he has been declared to be just right. Yes, he can do it. Yes, he is worthy. Yes, he can open the book. He can bring about God's plan for the future. How do we know that? Because we know of what he has done in the past. And so then in verse 6, we have, as we already said, Jesus is there. Jesus comes on the scene. And in chapter 1, and already in chapter 5, we've seen Jesus as a lion, as the conqueror, as the victor. And it's, it's kind of then unexpected that here he shows up and it's as a lamb, and as a, a slain lamb at that. Now, we shouldn't, what we shouldn't think here is that Jesus is like permanently in the body of an animal. No, it, he became incarnate as a man. He is a, as a glorified man. He rules from heaven. We know that. But in this prophetic vision, he is appearing in a way that reveals aspects of his character and his work. In the Bible, the purpose of a lamb is what? To be sacrificed to be offered up to God as an act of worship and of atonement for sin. 29 times in Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb. The book is going to end with the victory and the reign of the king, but that can only be achieved by the suffering of the Lamb. And so we had this moment where heaven was full of, was full of grief as they recognized unworthiness, but this grief is driven out when heaven sees the worthiness of Jesus. And so heaven explodes with joy and worships Jesus with this new song. And this song, it's all about why the Lamb is worthy. 
why Jesus is the center of everything, why he is our reason for being, our reason for existing, why he is what we are fighting for. Three reasons in the song. The first two are that he was slain and that by his blood he ransomed people. So Jesus, the perfect son of God, shed his blood on the cross. The passage says it three times, verse 6, verse 9, verse 12. Jesus was slain in the place of sinners. And what he accomplished by that sacrifice, what he accomplished by his death was, as it says, the ransom of people. Because every one of us is in bondage to sin. We're held captive to the sin that we commit and to the sin that we inherit. A price had to be paid to free us from our sin. We could never pay this price. But by Jesus dying in your place and in mine, that price has been paid. We have been bought back. We have been redeemed. And so already in Revelation 1.5, Jesus has called him who loves us and has freed us from his sins by his own blood. And so the, the, the multitude of heaven then is worshiping Jesus as the Savior for everyone. He's the Savior for everyone. And guess what that means? That he's the Savior for you. He's a Savior for you because you are a sinner. You need a ransom. Going to church doesn't save you. Being in a Christian family doesn't save you. Knowing Bible stories or going to youth group or serving in ministry, none of that saves you from your own unworthiness and your sin. The only thing that can save you from hell is having the spotless, sinless Son of God dying in your place. And this text is reminding us that that has happened. That has happened. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. Jesus offers you the opportunity to turn to him in repentance and faith because Jesus is the Savior. And some of you are here and some of you are listening and, and, and you've never declared yourself. You've never said, yes, I choose to repent of sin and follow Jesus, whether you're young or you're old. Today's the day. Respond to this call to take Jesus as your Savior, as your ransom. But a lot of you are going to read this and say, yes, yes, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. And for all of us, we need to look at this text and say, okay, then what difference does it make? You're telling me that the one who is the center of everything, the center of the entire universe, is the center of your life. How would I see that? If I looked at your life, how would I see that in evidence in your life? We can think about it like this. You know, most people basically do kind of the same stuff. They sort of go to school. They go to work. They do what they have to do. They get along with others. They do what they like to do in their spare time. Maybe it's reading. Maybe it's hiking. Maybe it's video games. They have as much fun as they can afford. They try not to get arrested. They do repeat that again and again 25,000 times, and then they die. It's like the path of least resistance. But see, there's another path. There's a path where you wake up a little bit and you say, hang on a second, hang on. If Jesus is the center of everything, and if Jesus is the Savior for everyone, those realities change the motivation for every second of every day of my life. And that doesn't mean that I'm instantly perfect, I'm instantly transformed, but suddenly I have something to live for. 
I have something to work for. I have something to strive for. I have something to fight for and to progress in because Jesus gave me this whole book of instruction on what he has to say and what his plan is for my life. And even if I haven't mastered all of it at once, it really matters to me that each day I'm taking steps to progress in my knowledge of him and better grow in him and understand who he is and what he expects and what he, his call upon me is today. This is the path of discipleship. This is a fight. And Jesus is worth fighting for. So Grace Community, don't be content with the path of least resistance. If Jesus is central and Jesus is Savior, that makes a difference every single day. But, but we need to see here also, we need to see here also, there are global implications of this passage. That Jesus isn't only the Savior for you, but Jesus is the Savior for everyone. And that doesn't mean that every single person in the world is going to be saved, that every person is going to heaven, but it means that forgiveness of sins is available to everyone. Because look again at 5.9. It says, By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So every nation or language, countries, large groups within countries that speak the same language, and then you can divide up the world even further. You can say, think about tribes. Think about families. It's kind of like, however you want to divide the world, whatever level of specificity you want to get to, however, whatever many groups you want to catalog, it's saying that Jesus is the Savior for them, for that group, and for that group, and for that group, and for all the groups. Jesus is the Savior for all of them because people from every single place in the world are lost in sin, but Jesus has saved people from every single place in the world. The point isn't so much the precise meaning of these different divisions, but to remind us that however we divide up the world, Jesus is the Savior for it all. He's the only Savior for it all. He has saved people from everywhere. And remember, this is a vision of the future. We're looking forward here. We're looking beyond John's day. We're looking beyond our day. And it's not just saying, I hope this happens someday. But from the standpoint of the future, this is looking back, and it's saying, that Jesus has done this. He has done it. He has saved people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And to the original recipients of this book, think of them, think of them in, you know, Roman, what we call today Turkey, province of Asia. Here they are, they're small, they're suffering. What an encouragement for them to know that Jesus' church is not going to be stomped out. Jesus' church is not going to be defeated. The gates of hell won't prevail against it that it's going to go forward, and it's going to progress, and it's going to grow, and it's going to spread to the ends of the earth, and the church can look out at all the tribes and tongues and peoples and nations that oppose them, and that early church can say, I know God is going to save people from all of those places. And what an encouragement for us today as we think about global partnerships and we think about missions to think about Emirati people in the UAE or Omanis or Yemenis or Persians or Hindus and remember Jesus is the savior for them. He's a savior for all of them. And even as this drives us around the world, this also should drive us to every place in our own communities. In Glenrose, in Granbury, in Fort Worth, in Dallas, in North Texas, it drives us to all of the people that live all around here because Jesus is the Savior for all of them. No matter who doesn't like us, 
No matter what names we're called, no matter what kinds of persecution, big or small, we encounter in a given place, in a given time, what we know for a fact is that these are all peoples and places for whom Jesus died and that he will capture the hearts of people from every tribe and tongue because he is the savior for everyone. But how's that going to happen? How's that going to come about? And to see that after we see that Jesus is the center of everything and that Jesus is the savior of the world, thirdly, we, we, we finally need to see that Jesus is also the sender to everywhere. Jesus is the sender to everywhere because look how verse 10 begins. Look at the first word. The first word is and. And he just said, by your blood you ransom people from every tribe and language of people and nation. And then and is the next verse. And you're like, hey, wait, there's something else? There's something more here? And, it, and it's kind of like one time when I was like, I don't know, seven years old, uh, I, I made a very bad choice, and I threw a rock at the UPS guy, okay? And uh, children, don't, don't do this. This is not a good idea. But so, you know, I, my, me and my friend are hanging out in the street, and this was like in the 1980s, so parents didn't watch their children as much, and so we're just like running around, and like, so, you know, suddenly, like, here's these rocks, and here's the big brown UPS truck coming, and we're like, hey, let's see if we can hit it. And so we, we all, like, took our throws, and like, bang, you know, one of them hits off the, the metallic side of the UPS truck, and so like, like it, the tires screech, truck stops, and like here's the guy in the brown shorts like running around after us, and we're scrambling around into the bushes, and uh, and he didn't catch us. We we, we got away with it um, in, until now. I don't know what the statute of limitations is on that, so I'm <laughs> confessing publicly now. But 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 just imagine with me, okay? Like, what if it had turned out differently? What if here's this kid that stones the UPS guy, and what if he got called into the CEO of UPS? And the UPS CEO is like, hey, Eric, uh, you know, you hurt my truck and you, you caused a lot of damage to the truck. That's going to cost like a thousand bucks to repair the dent in the side of the truck. And, and, but you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it go. You don't, you don't have to pay for the repair. And uh, we're not going to tell the police and we're not going to send you to prison. And so I'd be sitting there feeling like, oh, woo, I, got, I got away with one. You know, like, hey, I, I, this is great. He's, he's being so nice. I don't have to, like, uh, you know, pay the price for the crime that I committed. But then what if, what if this, this CEO, he went beyond that. He said, you know what, Eric, you know, we really are looking for, like, a new vice president directing our Western operations. And we would love for you to take that position. And we want you to work for us. And we want you to oversee a big chunk of UPS. It'd be like, What? Is this guy crazy? This guy must not know what's going on because I was the guy that was opposing the UPS drivers and now he wants me to be commanding the UPS drivers as they go out on their mission of delivering packages all around the world. Surely this cannot be. But see, and that didn't happen with UPS, but that's exactly what's happening here with Christ. Because look what he's saying. When, when he's, when, when he's already shown us how Jesus left heaven to be slain as a sacrificial lamb so that your sin could be paid for, so that you could be forgiven. You are unworthy, but he is worthy. You don't have to weep. You can worship. And you say, okay, isn't that enough? That's not enough. It's not just that you don't have to pay for your crimes, but there's even more than this because Jesus ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we're, we're part of that, right? We're part of those people from all over the place that got ransomed. And it says, 
Verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's saying that Jesus' sacrificial death doesn't only relate to our past, that we were redeemed, and it's not only about our future, where we will reign with him, but it's also about our present. And in the present, what's true of us is that when you woke up this morning, and when you, you know, sit here today, and when you go about your business tomorrow, here's what is true of you, it says, that you have been made a kingdom and priest to our God. That's you, that's us, that's the people that Christ has redeemed. It's the second time in Revelation it said the same thing in verse, chapter 1, verse 5. It says, to him who loves us, who's that? That's the church. And has freed us from our sins by his blood, 1-6. And has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we think, about what does it mean to be a kingdom? What does it mean to be priests? And that, that's like a, a treasure chest full of biblical theology that we can't fully open this morning, but we can at least kind of crack it open to say that, that in the Garden of Eden, God created mankind and he commissioned us as his representatives, but we sinned, we fell, we failed. And so then God called a particular people. He called the people of Israel. He commissioned them, Exodus 19.6, to be his kingdom of priests and holy nation, the people who collectively show to the entire world the character of God. They show the world what God is like because they are his representatives. But just like Adam failed in the garden, Israel failed in their sin and their idolatry. But then this text here, what it's saying to us is that, that Christ, what he accomplished on the cross is not only to restore, or not only to remove the penalty of our sin, but to restore the purpose of our existence. We are, as it says in 1 Peter 2, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, that's why we're here. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're fighting for. Brothers and sisters, you go about your life today as a priest of Jesus Christ as an ambassador of the one who is the ruler of everything. The mission of God's people isn't about one people group going to one other, but it's about all of God's people going from everywhere going to all of the lost people from everywhere. That's the way Christ has designed, designed it. Does it doesn't mean that we all need to quit our jobs tomorrow and go be missionaries to Arabia because we need some missionaries right here in Glenrose as well. And see, what that does mean is that there's like a hyphen on whatever you do. You're not just a student, you're a student priest. You're not just a lawyer, you're a lawyer priest. You're not just a nurse, you're a nurse priest. You're not just a mom, you're a mom priest. You're not just a sister or an engineer or a teacher or a friend. You're every one of those things slash priest of Jesus Christ. Because in every one of those places, in every one of those spheres, you, you represent the ruler of the universe. God wants to be known to the ends of the earth. And he could have revealed himself to the world any way that he wanted to. He's God. He has all the power. He can do whatever he wants. But the way he has chosen to work is to mobilize the ones he has saved with the good news of his gospel to go spread that good news to the nations. So really, there's two kinds of church. There's two kinds of career, two kinds of family, two kinds of life the kind that is gripped by these glimpses of Jesus, 
and lives in response to them in the kind that isn't. So which one are you? Which one are you? Because as you look with John into the future, what you find in the present is the cause that's big enough to die for and big enough to live for. The churches that John wrote this letter to had a hard go. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in the first century. Everybody was against them. But the goal for them wasn't just to survive, but what, it was to advance. In a hostile environment, the vision for the church isn't just one of just hanging on and, and carrying on, carrying on, but the goal is to take action, to take initiative, to move forward to those places where Christ isn't known. Yes, we will be rulers in heaven, but God has work for you and for me to do right now. So no matter the opposition, no matter the limitations, here is an occupation as a priest of Jesus Christ that requires all of your best skills, all of your genius, all of your labors, all of your abilities, and it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth striving to know God. It's worth striving to fight sin. It's worth putting yourself out there in gospel relationships. It's worth learning and reading and serving and going because Jesus is the center of everything. Jesus is the savior of everyone. Jesus is the sender to everywhere because Jesus is worthy. In the center of Dubai, there's a massive palace. There's a lot of palaces, but there's one that's particularly big. And in the center of that palace, there's a throne room. And in the center of that throne room, there's a king. We call him the Sheikh. And even though I have never been invited inside that throne room, as a resident of that kingdom, the decisions that are made in that room affect my life every day. Even though I don't see what's in there, I would be wise to never forget that that throne room exists. And we've seen in this text, at the center of the universe, there's another kind of throne room. This is the one that really matters because it houses the king of kings. And too often down here in our lives, today, tomorrow, we're, we live like we're in this fog that we forget that there's a heavenly throne. We don't see clearly. We can't tell the difference between what really matters and what's really so small. But Revelation calls upon us to, to wake up, to hear, to see. Because in this throne room of heaven, there's a lot of things that won't matter, but we've glimpsed what will. That Jesus is the center of everything. That Jesus is the savior for everyone. That Jesus is the sender to everywhere. That life is hard, but in Christ we will overcome. So pursue Jesus, know his people, serve his church, endure through sacrifice and suffering, build his kingdom, and I know that at the end you will look back on it all and say, Jesus is worthy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Grace Community Church of Glen Rose. Thanks for the opportunity to be partners in the gospel to make Christ known in the ends of the earth. May you use this church mightily to make Christ known here, to make Christ known everywhere. May we see Christ as the center of our lives and live as if that were true, because he is. And in his name we pray, amen.